The book of Revelation was not a shoe-in. Some folks didn't think it belonged in the Bible in the first place. In the infancy stages of Christianity, while the church was still debating which books would be in the sacred canon of Holy Scripture and which were good but not quite Scripture, some leaders thought Revelation didn't quite belong. Sometimes I wish it hadn't made it in. Because, you know, too many folks have been scared into Christianity for fear of being left behind. And still others have run far away from Christianity because they couldn't hear in this crazy, apocalyptic, outlandish imagery in Revelation some kind of intimate, compelling, beautiful reason to join up with the forces of God. But actually, I think what frightened people away was not the book itself, but several misguided interpretations of this book. My favorite copy of the Bible is a copy that I carried around for so many years from Bible study class to Bible study class, perhaps storing it occasionally in the trunk of my car, that some of the pages started to tear and rip and the binding fell off, and my friends in Bible study got together and decided they would take that Bible and have it rebound in leather. And in the process, I discovered that some of the pages in the back were torn. Chapter 20 of Revelation was ripped in two, the index mostly gone. And I was so delighted to discover that Revelation 21 was still intact. It was still there, and I was so happy because I think it's one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. And not only do I love its beauty, but Revelation 21, the verses you just read, dispel two common myths in our culture about God. One, Revelation 21, says that God brings heaven to earth, not us to heaven. See, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them, and they will be God's people. Secondly, Revelation 21 says that what happens at the end of all time is more about God's good behavior than about ours. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, God's doing. You know, so many times in books and in movies and on television from televangelists, we've been warned that we've got to be good or God will leave us behind and take everyone else up to heaven. But Revelation says that at the end of all time, if one could imagine time ending, that God's ultimate goal would be to be with us here on earth. As one scholar so cleverly puts it, God does not say, I will make all new things. God says, I will make all things new. God comes to transform the city in which we live into a holy city where pain and crying are no longer needed because all of us are nourished by the life-giving water in that river of life. You know, I love the fact that the Bible begins in a garden and ends in a city. Genesis tells us of that idyllic, green, lush place must have been a day like today in Kansas City. So beautiful, 
And Adam and Eve were there with all the newly formed creatures roaming freely in bliss. And if I had written the Bible, I might have taken us back to the garden at the end. But the way it is written, the Bible ends in a city, a beautiful city with streets of gold and jeweled gates and a tree of life with that lush, beautiful fruit. Think about our graduating seniors today, those who just stood before us. Their lives all began in beautiful homes. And their future now, what we pray for when we prayed for them, is not about going back to that idyllic powder blue nursery with the giraffe mobile hanging over their crib. No, their future is in a new place, a new heaven, a new earth, a new college, a new job, a new creative opportunity awaiting them, a place where God will meet them as surely as God met them in the rocking chair in the nursery but in a new way. So what role will you and I play in this future that God imagines? For these past four weeks, we've been talking about the legacy of love, the legacy we have all received from God through the Christians who have gone before us in this particular place. And today, we pause to ask ourselves, what legacy will we leave? Will we leave a city that is more vibrant and peaceful than the one we inherited? Will we leave a church building that is a strong spiritual foundation for the next generation? Will this congregation testify to the power of God who loves all people and bids them to come and follow in a life-changing path of love? If this church stands for another century, how will our city look more like that holy city coming down out of heaven that God promises? Or does God perhaps have a plan that doesn't really require us to step up? About 15 years ago, I was on sabbatical in Great Britain and we had the chance to tour the campus of Oxford. My son was six at the time and he was delighted that we would get to see the places where some of the Harry Potter film had been made. There were these old dining halls with beautiful wood beam ceilings, kind of like ours, and there were these octagonal shaped libraries in these creepy corridors that looked exactly like Hogwarts. And I remember somewhere in the middle of that tour, the tour guide mentioned that in the Middle Ages, when a priest became a priest, that his family would pass his inheritance, his land, into the hands of the church. And so at one time they estimated that all the land between Oxford and Cambridge was owned by the church. Mike Graves, my colleague, reminded me recently of a story that takes place at Oxford. It tells about the oldest college at Oxford, which is ironically named New College, it was formed in 1379. Charlotte Hare shared the story of New College at Oxford in her blog a couple of years ago. She said that at New College, they discovered about 100 years ago that the oak beams in the ceiling were infested with beetles, and they would have to be replaced to, re to protect the structural integrity of the building. They agonized about 
where in the world they could find oak beams large enough to replace beams like that. And then one fellow spoke up and suggested that they consult the forester. He had not been on the campus for years, but he was the caretaker of the forest that they owned on some of that land they had inherited. They went to him and asked him about any kind of possibility for replacing those oak beams. And he said, I wondered when you would ask. The forester ex explained that when the college, new college, was founded that a grove of oak trees had been planted to replace those very beams in the dining hall when they became beetle infested because they knew inevitably it would happen. The plan had been passed down from one forester to the next for over 500 years, each one telling the next, don't cut down those trees, those are for new college. We're not sure if all of this story is fact or some of it legend, but we do know that the college did keep groves of trees for construction purposes. And we know that it is this kind of long-term thinking that is the only way we can keep God's dream alive. Still, I kept wondering, does God really need us to plant trees, or does God have some kind of other fantastic plan for saving us and bringing all of us to our ultimate destination without our personal involvement? And then last week, I sat down with some of the students who just stood before you and some of the juniors and sophomores as well, we met over at Panera where they meet each week for conversation, and I asked them to tell me, what is it that you have received from this congregation by growing up here? And I sure wish each one of you had been there at Panera with us to hear it in their words. But I'll summarize three key themes. One was service. I learned the importance of helping other people. Oh, I said, you mean like on the mission trips? Oh, yeah, but also just service projects and grace at work days and just sitting in our sanctuary and listening my entire life i learned the value and the joy of helping others by serving the second thing they said was support these young people experienced church as a place where adults who you didn't even know would come and support you and love you even if you made a mistake and they experienced their peers in the youth group as people who knew the best of them and the worst of them, like family, and who were the deeper kinds of friends, the resources that they needed most, when sometimes friends at school couldn't offer that same kind of support. And the third thing they said was acceptance. Here at Country Club, they found a haven where they could figure out what they believed for themselves, a place where they could always ask questions about God and where the message of forgiveness always triumphed over vengeance. They talked about friends at school who were taught that God would send you on a short trip to hell if you embraced a religion different from your mom's and dad's or if you broke a household rule and they talked about the pain and bitterness of religion and how it had created such angst in the lives of some of their friends. But here at our church, they said, we found freedom to become ourselves and to love one another and to take risks and not 
be fearful that we'd be criticized. We knew that we would be loved in the way that Jesus loved. And I said, well, what, what would you want for your kids if they were going to grow up in our church? And they said the exact same thing that we got, only with more diversity and more teachings about the beliefs of other religions. When I heard their testimony, I realized that God is already building this new Jerusalem, this city of heaven come down to earth. It is already happening through your generous gifts. The eternal joy that Revelation describes is already unfolding in an ordinary town called Kansas City. And then I remembered Dr. Bill Brown. He walked up to me on Easter Sunday, shook my hand right there at the door, and he said, I sang in the children's choir here 73 years ago. Bill had not been here since his father died 19 years ago. He currently teaches pediatric medicine at the University of Hawaii. He felt right at home here on Easter Sunday because when he walked in, Carl Bolte was standing right there passing out programs and he said, Carl was my childhood Sunday school teacher. And there he was. I called Bill this week and I asked him, what legacy did you receive from this church at 61st and Ward Parkway? And why did you come back here on Easter Sunday this year? He told me that when he was a little boy, his father was the chair of the Board of Elders in the church. His mother was a pillar in the church. They were here every week for choir practice and church night dinners. And in between choir and church night dinner, he would sneak into the sanctuary alone sit in one of those pews and gaze up at the stained glass window and pray to Jesus that what he was feeling would go away. He went on to KU. He became a pediatrician. He served in Vietnam. He got married, had a daughter, and had a thriving medical practice in New York City. And finally, he admitted that he was gay. His father got on a plane in Kansas City, flew up to see him, and Bill began to weep as he told me how his father looked at him and said, I don't understand this, but you are my son, and I will always love you, always support you, and always be proud of you. He said that when he came back to the sanctuary on Easter, he sat in the pew and gazed at the window again, and he saw in the face of Jesus the message he had waited for his whole life. He said, when the organist plays, Jesus loves me, this I know. I've heard Jesus speak, Jesus loves me. I said, Bill, you still go to church? Yes, he said, I'm a deacon. I sing in the chancel choir and I'm on a committee and we're working on an emergency medical plan. I believe in an abundantly benevolent universe and I finally found the spirituality I'd been seeking my whole life. You and I are invited to partner with God in creating a legacy of love to pass on to the next generation. God will do it 
for sure. The gift God gives us is inviting us into the joy of participating in that holy project. I can't think of any project I'd rather take on or any group of people I'd rather partner with in God's holy work of love than with all of you. It's our turn to plant a grove of trees. In Revelation, the vision is this. God will dwell with them and they will be God's people and God will be with them. Our gifts are the way we partner with God to pass on the legacy of love. At the end of his autobiography, our founding pastor, Dr. George Hamilton Combs, says, my preaching days are over. He is retired for the second time, moved out to Longview Farms, and now his daily work is gardening. He is planting fruit trees. He says, throughout my life, I preached a lot of sermons. Those were trees I planted of faith and hope and love. And then he recites a line from a novel by Walter Scott. Plant a tree. It will be a growing while you're a-sleepin'.